Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department Podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their beginnings, their successes, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, my guest is Caldecott-winning illustrator and author David McCulley. In this era of information overload, it can be challenging to know how to slow down and pay attention to the world we live in. But David, who built a career on explaining how, explains how. Among other topics, we look back on his first steps in publishing from rejections to Caldecott's. He shares his thoughts on breaking into publishing, developing curiosity, quitting illustration, and more. For David, I had to record our chat a bit differently, so my audio is a little off, but appropriately, we made it work. I hope you enjoy our conversation. How old were you when you emigrated from England? I was almost 11 when we left England. And it was, it was sort of the end of my childhood because growing up in England had been one of those really uh, kind of idyllic. I mean, it, very, you know, like lower middle class, um, working class family, basically, mm-hmm. um, living in the, the brick housing, the mill, kind of mill style housing uh, that was put up after the war or even during the war. But I had a lot of time to myself. It was a small house. So I was um, sent off by my mother often to entertain myself. Well, what could be better than that when, you're, right. when your mother or father says, well, just go out and entertain yourself. Yeah. Um, and I headed for the woods and, and, and played and uh, grew my imagination. And this was what, 57? 1957? Yeah, 57 is when we left uh, and um, landed in New York City. You know, you ended up in Cumberland, Rhode Island, but with a pit stop in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And Verona. Right? And Verona, New Jersey, too. Oh, really? Yeah, if we want to include everybody here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, years ago, my wife and I were looking at houses in Verona, and uh, it's very pretty. It's very pretty. Oh, it is. It was a great town. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, the thing about uh, both places is that the kids my age all felt like they were at least two years older than me, maybe more. Uh, I just felt like such a child. Mm. And, and that's what I brought with me, I guess, my, my childhood. And, and it, it got beaten out of me uh, out of necessity in a way because it was inappropriate. I had to somehow behave older and seem more mature uh, with, these, with this new group of uh, people and friends and some right. of whom became great friends. Um, it was quite a transition. But you can what? imagine England after the war. Um, uh, you, you know, everything's sort of low key. Um, the U.S. is booming. Mm-hmm. So affluence in Bloomfield and in particularly in Verona was uh, noticeable um, to me, who had never been aware of something called affluence <laughs> before. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it just something you get used to. Right. What led you to the Rhode Island School of Design? Uh, convenience, as much as anything. Uh, I lived in living in Cumberland, Rhode Island. We were about half an hour from Providence. Yeah. So I could get to RISD in, in half an hour. Um, and for financial reasons, we decided, and everybody now agrees it was a terrible mistake, not to have me live at RISD, but, you know, just live at home. And I thought, well, that seems reasonable. I know this can be expensive. 
mm-hmm. what was it like eight hundred dollars a semester or something like oh, that? Stop. Then it was crippling. So uh, you know, so living at home and saving some money was you know just the way my parents thought. Yeah. Um, and and I I had no problem with that. Well, your parents were creative, right? Like, didn't your grandfather introduce you to architecture? He did, well, he was a yeah, he was a surveyor who and a wannabe architect. He never actually became an architect, but he was a, a surveyor. And he one of my prized possessions is a set of drawings he made to enter an architectural competition for uh, like a, not a town hall, but some sort of a meeting hall in Bolton, uh, where where I grew up. And um, there, it's amazing to see somebody who wasn't, I would never have considered himself an artist, but who could draw with a pen, you know, a dip pen and letter the way he was taught to do in order to produce these images. It was extraordinary. And we were never allowed in his room when we visited my grandparents in Manchester. Um, but there was a glass door, like a French door. So I, yeah. I, I looked in a lot. So that, there was some inspiration there. My mother made things, um, sewing, knitting, um, very of a practical nature because they were useful and uh, mm-hmm. we needed them. Right. And my father worked with machines in the textile industry. And uh, so, and he, he always sort of was making things needed around the house out of wood. If it was wood, it was my father's area of expertise. If it was fabric or wool or something like that, it was my mother's area of expertise or embroidery thread. Mm-hmm. Um, I played with the, the remnants of both sets of activities, made things out of the leftover wood and, um, and, and fashioned things out of cardboard and scraps and used some of my mother's uh, leftover thread and spools and stuff like that as part of my building activities. You know, while doing research for this conversation, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that you and I have two somewhat similar RISD experiences. One, we went to RISD with the idea of having a career in architecture, but decided against it. You in your last year, I believe, and me in my first. Two, we both were part of the European Honors Program. Um, were you staying at the Chenchi at the time, or was it someplace different? No, no. The Chenchi was not. Um, was just studio space uh, in 1968 and before that. And, and I think for a few years after, um, it didn't become the kind of dormitory slash studio space combo. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was in the uh, later 70s and through the 80s. Uh, we stayed at a pensione near the Chenchi called, um, what was it called? I've forgotten the name of it. We, it's, the not, it's not called the Hotel Smeralda, is it? N- no. Okay. No, it wasn't that one. But it was just around the corner. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and then that was fine. It, you know, live in one place, work in another, sure. all of a block apart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and around Campo de Fiori, so it's not like it was a bad oh, area right. or anything. It's oh, it's a fantastic area. I mean, yeah. it's it remains my favorite part of Rome. So, sometimes too. I'm not sure I even know there are other parts of Rome. <laughs> uh, I I got to know that part so well. Um, I, I walked a lot, and every time I go back, I walk for hours and hours, yeah. following the same routes just to make sure everything is still there. I and think. it still is. And it still is. Yep. And 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 has been for some time. Mm-hmm. So I. I knew by my junior year at RISD that I didn't want to be an architect, but I really loved studying architecture. And I, that trained, that was my training in sort of design. Uh-huh. Um, any aspect of design came through architecture as a, it was problem solving basically. And whether you were, you thought you were making a building or a complex of buildings or designing a system, 
it didn't matter. You were learning how to think in a sort of creative and logical way right. in order to, uh, you know, solve problems with imagination. Mm -hmm. But you still got a degree in architecture though, right? Absolutely. But my name is spelled wrong. <laughs> did, did they ever fix it? They, they offered to, but I just thought it was too good to be true. Um, <laughs> I've, used it as a, I've used it as an excuse for years for why I didn't become an architect. Um, my mother and father, I don't think, found it as amusing as I did. But, um, but nevertheless, I, I, you know, I didn't want them to change it. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? <laughs> my, if my children graduated from college, well, when they do, hopefully, and... Um, someone misspells their name, I'll be like, what the hell is this bullshit? I'm going <laughs> exactly. right to the, yeah, no, 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 we'll not allow it. Um, what were your first jobs in freelance illustration? Um, oh, well, as a junior, at the same time I was deciding that I didn't want to be an architect, I found, I got a part-time job with mm -hmm. an interior designer in Providence. And um, I did all the drawings, all the, uh, you know, renderings, or at least most of them for his, you know, for the restaurants and shops and things we were designing. So I was drawing all the time in the office, which was terrific, working mm -hmm. with magic markers, sniffing that wonderful smell. <laughs> um, and just, you know, it, it was it, it, so much practice, yeah. just, but I was getting paid for it, which was terrific. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, we would do a little sort of graphic design element would creep into it. Like for instance, we did a restaurant, a Chinese restaurant in uh, Providence, and they needed a new menu. So I designed the menu. And that led to designing ads for the newspaper that would promote the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And even little matchbooks um, that had my image on it. Uh, so I was sort of building a, um, a little portfolio, I guess you could say, um, at the time, although I really wasn't thinking specifically about uh, going into illustration, I guess I was beginning to uh, understand that this freelance thing could be kind of fun in its flexibility and sure. the surprising problems you might have to solve from time to time. And But one aspect of freelancing is rejection. I assume you were rejected once or twice. Maybe well, not. I was, I was rejected in a major way. A very good friend of mine in the architecture department, a fellow with whom I worked on many projects. We did this joint thing often and uh -huh. got along really well. Anyway, he's a New Yorker, and he set up this interview for me with a with a uh, art director on Madison Avenue, literally on Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. So I showed up with this portfolio of half-baked images in cellophane pages in a big black book, mm -hmm. and I took my time had come, and I walked into the office, and I opened this thing, and he turned through the pages, and he turned through them in about, I'm going to guess, 55 seconds. <laughs> the whole thing. I mean, he'd, he'd seen it all and probably literally seen it all a thousand times. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, this really isn't what we're looking for, but I want to thank you for coming in. So that was like after two and a half minutes, I was back out on the street Ugh. and I'd even borrowed a tie to, <laughs> to, to, to attend this and make a better impression. Uh, um, but it was one of those, you know, you never forget it, mm -hmm. but I'd look back and he was absolutely right. I mean, I know they know what they're looking for. And if you don't, if you don't sort of fit into that mold, it's going to be harder. Uh, and you, you either have to decide I'm going to change my mold uh, to fit theirs, or I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, or I'm just going to keep practicing until I get good enough to do something that will stand on its own. Yeah. Earlier today, I was talking to an illustrator, his name is Zach, and he is 
a pretty exceptional illustrator. You know, he, he technically, he can draw, he can paint great compositions. He wants to get into children's books, you know, and he's frustrated because he's been submitting and submitting and submitting to agents and publishers and he's just not getting much. And what he does get is usually pretty boilerplate. Do you, two questions for you. One is, do you, what else do you remember about the rejections did you, that you got? Were they boilerplate? Were they specific? Were they nothing? And two, what would you say to him? I mean, I, my answer to him was, you know, look, man, your, your work is good. You have to just keep submitting. Eventually, you know, you're not going to catch any fish if you don't, if you don't, if you pull all your lines up, you just got to keep fishing and keep throwing the lines out there. Eventually you'll catch one. What would you say to him? What would you say to somebody, anybody who's been submitting and submitting and submitting um, and not quite catching that fish yet? I would, I would uh, have to say, I'm not surprised. The children's book world has become increasingly difficult uh, for people to get into, to break into mm -hmm. um, because there are so many people who want to do it. And so now you've got publishers, um, the, inner, the inner sanctum, the publisher. Mm -hmm. Then the first ring of defense around them are the agents who, be, as, as if they're working for the publishers, they, they become the, you know, the sort of thing you have to get through and get into before mm -hmm. you stand a chance of getting to the publishers. Yeah. Um, so you, you do, you're right about, you have to just keep doing it. I think it is easier for agents and publishers to recognize uh, something that they think they can market, which is ab absolutely what they're looking for. But if you are writing the story or creating a story as well as creating the illustrations, you're in a better position to start with. If you're mm -hmm. just coming in as an illustrator who wants them to find you or an agent to find you, I'm not saying they won't, but I think it's harder if they have to sort of team you up with somebody or uh, supply the other 50% of the creative package. Right. So that's a, that's a problem. I mean, that, that is increasingly a problem. But now I have to jump back to your first question. I, I'm a little uncomfortable answering the question because I had a really extraordinary first experience. First of all, I didn't know any publishers. I, I learned, I got some names from some of my friends, uh, RISTI friends of mine. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked them up in the phone book called people like Houghton Mifflin. Yeah. And uh, I had some, I had a portfolio that the one that got rejected. And I think by this point, I even had a few, a few story ideas or illustrations for stories that a friend of mine had written or was working mm -hmm. on because they had young kids, mm -hmm. which I did not. So I felt I had something to show. And in fact, the designer, the, the guy I worked for in the interior design office um, had written a terrific story. So I illustrated the whole thing and we went up together so here's the guy who's about to lose me to the world of illustration, um, but he's just so excited about this possibility, not just for me, but for himself as well. So, um, but we went up with a complete package. And uh, I, that's how I met people at the children's book department at Houghton Mifflin, now Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And I got to know a couple of people, I mean, but facial recognition, name. And they said, this isn't really, you know, for us, but, uh, you know, stay, stay in touch. Let us know what you're doing. The next thing was a story I'd written myself. A couple of months later, I go back up, I make another appointment, you know, and um, they say, ah, this isn't really, you know, quite right yet, but, you know, I like the way you're thinking and designing. And um, uh, 
the next the, the next one like months later was a uh, the story that was basically set in the middle ages about the building of a gothic cathedral in the background and the story of a young uh, boy who was the son of a stonecutter who worked at the cathedral and a fantasy story about you know gargoyles coming to life and all that sort of stuff so in that sense somewhat derivative but um but the drawings were becoming more confident. And one of the drawings was the half finished facade of the cathedral. It was that drawing in pen and ink that made them, uh, made Walter Lorraine at, at Houghton say to me, we don't really need any more gargoyle stories, any more flying gargoyles, you know, um, but can you tell us about this cathedral? Can you tell us about this drawing? And um, I said, well, you know, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, like, how was it built? for instance, what are they doing? And I said, oh, how was it built? Well, yeah, I guess I could do that. Having, you know, done everything I could to sort of move away from architecture, here I was being dragged back by the scruff of my neck. Um, and, you know, two months later, after spending a fair amount of time in the library at RISD, and then um, making these sketches on tracing paper, and uh, I took them back up, and I laid all the sketches out on Walter's table, and I told him the story from the digging of holes in the ground to the finishing of the spires and so on and so forth, making it up because I really didn't know a lot about it yet. Right. And um, he said, at, at the end of this, he said, he had a smile on his face and said, okay, let's do it. That's how it happened in a year and roughly a year and a half from the first ideas that kind of got me in the door from the phone call that I was able to make directly to the inner sanctum. Now yeah. those days are gone. That's, it's, that's, oh, that's why I say I'm a little sheepish about, you know, sort of falling back on my own experience because it seems like my childhood, too idyllic. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. who, gets, who gets that kind of a break? Well, uh, you and most of, you know, illustrators before, what, 1990s or so, it just, it just seemed like that was always, and even when I started as a junior, as a design assistant in 99, illustrators were still allowed to drop their portfolios off and yeah. come into the office. That wasn't that long ago, yeah. but you can't do that now. Well, no. I mean, aside from well, COVID. You, but you don't give up. You, I mean, I, right. you're, but go back to that first point. You don't give up because you don't know. You may have something uh, that, can be sh that you can show. If you can just figure out the, the logistics yeah. of getting it to the right person. And that's, that's right. just a matter of keeping your ear to the ground and paying yeah. attention and talking to people and looking for connections wherever possible. Mm -hmm. um, do your homework. If there's, a, if there's a certain kind of work that you really love um, and you don't, you're not mimicking it, but you could see how your work might be appealing to somebody who, who the name of a publisher who's on that book that you're, intrigued by around that magazine that you're intrigued yeah. by mm -hmm. you know you follow up you 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 become the detective and you do the you do the footwork um or is it legwork to um <laughs> it's ultimately handwork all the parts it's all the but nevertheless parts. it's all the parts um but that you you know you just you have to work harder unfortunately yeah and while you're working harder you're probably working at something that you don't think is particularly interesting and you're desperate to leave that thing, even if it pays the bills and get to the thing that you really want to do, the passion that you really yeah. uh, you feel for something. We all do. Um, I was, I was surprisingly lucky. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad to hear you say literally all the words you just said, because that's pretty much what I said to him. So it's nice. It's a nice feeling to, uh, to hear, you know, David McCauley agree with you on something. Um, I'm going to take that and, and ride on it for the next couple of days. Anytime I have a Caldecott medal or honor winner on the podcast, like Pamela Zagorensky, Javaka Stepto, Rudy Gutierrez, Betsy Lewin, David Wiesner, I ask them the same question. What was it like getting the Caldecott call in your case for Cathedral? Cathedral and Castle both won the, the, the honor medals. Right. Black and white took the big one. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of put them together. Cause you know. Okay. Okay. That's no, that's great. Um, it's got his name on it. You know, it's got, right. It's it, and, and it does have a little bit of uh, relief when you, sure. when you rub your fingers over it. Uh, when it <laughs> if it's the original stuck to the book version. Um, right. What was it like? Um, I don't remember. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a call. It was a call from, it would have been Walter calling. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, I don't think, I don't recall, you know, like you hear a call from the librarian, from on the ALA committee and so on and so forth. I don't remember any of that at all. Um, I think it was ultimately, a, because maybe just because it wasn't the gold medal, um, they contacted the publisher yeah. and Walt, Walter called me and said, you've, you know, you won this honor medal mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. And what it was like was, wow, what a great way to start. This is, this is good. Um, and, and Walter's reaction almost immediate was, yeah, so what are you going to do next? Oh, what do you want to get started on now? And I thought, well, can, can we just enjoy this for yeah. a moment or two? I've, I'm and like halfway these, done my champagne yeah, here. Right, exactly. Haven't even found the corkscrew. Um, <laughs> but, I, but uh, you know, uh, you know I, we figured it out, obviously. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. with, um, with black and white, with the, with the gold uh, medal, it was... Yeah. I was, I was on, I, I don't know what I was doing. I wasn't a, around. And so I came into the studio at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, my assistant, who is now my wife said, um, Walter called and he said, you won the Caldecott medal. And I said, what, for what book? Because you know, the most recent book I had done was black and white, which I did not think of as Caldecott material. Mm. And he said, yeah, for black and white. Oh, whoa. How is that possible? So anyway, I've continued to ask that question. Um, and and I've, I've also come to, um, maybe it's a self-serving thing, come to think of the Caldecott Medal as, even though it says most distinguished uh, illustrations for a picture book for children, blah, blah, blah. Those uh, bo- uh, pictures of mine were not the most distinguished uh, picture book illustrations done in that year. I, I, I guarantee it. But there was something about the book and the way the book was put together and the thinking yeah. behind the book right. that, um, that I did think should be recognized. Mm-hmm. And I was just delighted that this group of people could agree that a, that a book is kind of weird, and un, slightly unusual as um, black and white should, would be worthy of th- this kind of recognition. I mean, I took the medal, don't get me wrong. I did not decline the author, but, um, but I have, you know, there's more to it than so-called distinguished illustrations. I think, um, I think that's so subjective, oh, to be honest with 100%. you. hundred uh, percent. And, you know, so what this, this committee, I mean, all you can really say is if an entire committee agrees that this is the way to go, um, then you've reached a level of ultimate compromise. 
because they all agreed. They all signed off on you. Wow, what an honor. If one person screamed and jumped up and down and said, no, this is the book that has to do it. Um, and these are my reasons for thinking that way. And they win them over. And that does happen uh, from what I hear. Uh, then I think it's more meaningful. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is offering listeners of the Illustration Department podcast a free trial of premium membership. If you're going to take just one online class, let it be with the ID. If you're going to take two online classes, take one with Skillshare. They are offering fascinating classes on topics including productivity, freelancing and entrepreneurship, creative writing, and much more. Many of you know that I hate the word perfect. It is a word that does not serve us as artists. Let us all agree to replace perfect with progress. So, practice makes progress. Whatever goal you have in mind, advancing toward it is achievable with short lessons, hands-on projects, and classes you can fit with your schedule. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com ID, where you will get a free trial of premium membership. That's two weeks free at Skillshare.com ID. Now back to my conversation with David McCauley. You've said that we as a society have been trained to absorb information superficially without asking questions about that very information. I think it's safe to say that we're currently heading further and further down that road propelled by social media, in my view. Mm -hmm. it, it goes without saying that it's important to slow down and observe the world around us. The question isn't why. We know why. The question for me anyway is how. How do we do that in a society that like requires us to stay tuned all the time? It's information overload. And so I'm talking to the guy who's helped teach generations of, well, not just kids, everyone, people, how things work, you know, how, how, how things are built, how things move. What do you say to that? I mean, what do you, what, how do we slow the well, hell down and, and look around us? And, yeah, let me, let me just say again, uh, repeat that little uh, bit about my childhood. Um, the thing I was learning as a child, um, the thing I was developing was curiosity. And, and I, was, I was given enough time on my own, playing outside, running through the woods, discovering things, mm -hmm. um, collecting uh, frog spawn from the pond at the end of our street and stuff like that, watching them grow into frogs. And um, my childhood was really all about developing curiosity, which leads to imagination. Um, if you don't, if you weren't that lucky, if you haven't been that lucky with your childhood, um, I would suggest, and you're, you're older and you're recognizing that you, you, you do want to be curious. You want to develop your curiosity. Um, you want to become more connected with the world around you. Uh, not just the way things look, but the way people behave and the way systems operate and so on and so forth. Um, but particularly with the looking and with the visual thing, I would say, get a dog. And we've had dogs for the last 25 years or so. We, in fact, we had dogs in, a dog in England too. Um, if you have to walk a dog, mm -hmm. you are really lucky because they know what they have to do. They know their job. All you have to do is hold on to the leash 
And when you're holding onto the leash and this dog is, you know, with, using its nose to sort of drag you around town and so on, um, you are left with time on your hands. Now, if you've made the mistake of bringing your iPhone or your mm. smartphone or whatever yep. device you have, then that's stupid. Don't get, forget it. Turn it off. Don't even bring it. Ask, check with the dog first. Should I bring this? No. So just head out with your leash with the dog and let the dog do what it has to do and lead you the way it wants to lead you and look around, open your eyes. So, I mean, we, we live in a town in, um, in, in Vermont at the moment, and we've been here now for 14 years or something like that. Um, it's a great little town, lots of wonderful things to look at, but you know, Wherever we have lived, there have been things to look at. And mm -hmm. having a dog or young children who need to be wheeled around for mm -hmm. those first few years, what a gift that is, because they don't care where you wheel them. They're you know, asleep half the time. So you know, you're looking around and you're, if, you, if you get into the habit of asking questions about what you're seeing, then you're beginning to have this kind of conversation with the world around you. Mm -hmm. and. It's that, it's that conversation, it's that interaction that feeds, um, feeds your mind, develops curiosity, because every time you ask a question um, and, and come up with an answer, you have like five more questions. That's how it starts. I just, I mean, I guess I've been lucky enough to have led a life that has encouraged me to, to, um, to be inquisitive yeah. and to be curious. And to try to make things out of scraps and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and discovered that it's a way of learning how things work. You don't always have to see the real machine, but you try to replicate a, a system, a way of lifting something or um, some, some device that, that has some function. You try mm -hmm. to replicate it with cardboard and tape and string. Mm -hmm. You really learn a tremendous amount and you have more questions so yeah. that but the next time you see the real thing or something comparable to it you're already ahead of the game because you you can look at it you you recognize mm -hmm. what each of those or some of those pieces are doing what some of those elements are doing so for me it really did start in those first 10 or 11 years but yeah. not everybody is that lucky not everybody's that lucky and i wasn't there was no social media there was no you know there weren't these devices we can who could have believed that um i could be doing holding this microphone in my hand right now seeing you on the screen in front of me and we'd be having this chat you know miles apart and and we could also do it with these little devices that we can i mean they are remarkable and mm -hmm. seductive but they're they're also uh you know they they, they insert themselves into into uh, into one's life in a way that makes them take on a, an importance that they simply don't deserve. Yeah, you know, you go to one of those devices because you have a question that needs answering. I'm all for that, but when you when you run out of and the you know and, or don't have aren't able to develop excitement about just seeing the stuff around you in a way that you've never seen it before, because you don't look at it hard enough. You don't stop. You don't interrupt the flow of your day mm -hmm. to ask a question about that thing on that house. Yeah. What is that? Why is it up so high? What does it look that way? What's mm -hmm. it fastened to? What does it do? I mean, 
I can't get down the street if the guys are working on telephone poles because you know, even though the dog loves the telephone poles, I'm looking up higher. I, my, my ambitions have always looked a little higher than the dogs when it comes to telephone poles, trees, and hydrants. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you know, what are the, all those wires? What are all those cables? What are they connecting to? Mm -hmm. what are they, why do they keep changing? And every once in a while, if I'm really lucky, they put in a new pole because they simply overloaded all the old poles with like the physical weight of the cables and the wires. Right, right. Watching that process, I mean, how deep a hole do you have to dig in the ground before mm -hmm. you lower in a pole, like nine feet, something like that? And who knew? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I'm having, a, I'm having a, a personal kind of uh, related experience. And, uh, you know, I used to, I lived for 20 years in New York City, you know, and, and working in corporate publishing and, you know, it was just stimulus, like stimulation all the time, you know, just in the city, you get that, you have that energy and, you know, I'm on my phone, I'm at work and, you know, moving around and stuff. Now that I live out here in Pennsylvania in the woods, I have been trying to consciously trying to, cause I know everything you're saying is right, but it's hard. Like I've been trying to consciously put my phone down and just walk around the house even, or walk mm -hmm. down the street or, go outside and just stare at a tree, you know, just, just slowing down my brain. And what happens is my brain's been so used to all this stimuli that, that it, it's, it's like, you can hear it screaming almost, you know, like it's, it wants that craving. Um, so for me, it's, it's actually kind of challenging. I've been consciously putting, like trying to like, do I need my phone when I do that? No, I don't. Do I need to check Twitter? No, I don't. I, I, I personally have definitely been too online capital T, capital O for mm -hmm. too long. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've been working on. And that's why I wanted to ask, like, how do you slow the F down and well, just you, be, be like how it used to be? Change your, uh, you know, replace your, uh, your, your device, whatever it may be with a sketchbook. There you go. And um, which is harder to do in New York. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I would think it's harder. Streets are more crowded. You know, you're, you're a little bit more self-conscious, perhaps. I mean, where yeah. you are now, you have the benefit of being on quieter streets. I mean, you, you said yourself, okay, do I stop and look at a tree? Damn right. But if you really start looking at the tree and sketching it at the same time, mm. then, I mean, that to me is really looking at it. Because that's when you begin to ask questions about, what? wait a minute, why does the bark do this on, like, on sure. one side of the tree, it seems to change on the other side of the tree and the color is different and so on and so forth. That doesn't happen unless you spend enough time with it. Yeah. And the, Actually, you know, I, and I drew more in New York than I do here. Really? Oh yeah. Well, subway rides, one hour subway, subway rides. rides. Right. Okay. You know, drawing, you know, uh, <laughs> folks who are nodding off and stuff and unsuspecting of yep. the fact that some dude was staring at them for 25 minutes in a row. Yep. Um, well, you're sitting down. True. Perhaps, right? On the, on the train. Yep. Um, no, that makes perfect sense. And what a great way of using that time. I mean, oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for it. But don't, don't, you know, force yourself perhaps to, to you know, uh, find that step to sit on or that rock to sit on or something that post to lean against mm. on a quieter street where there's lots of stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. just, it's just that we, we don't take the time to notice. No, we don't. And what's, what I find interesting is there's this um, clash of information, like this clash of advice. You know, illustrators will hear two things. They're hearing us saying, slow down, look at a tree. But then they also hear me. I mean, I've, I've said this to illustrators. Oh, you know, you really, you have to have some kind of social media presence if you want to like, you know, have a career in illustration. 
there's there's obviously that that's a it's very conflicting advice it's like well what do you want me to do do you want me to get online do you want me to post stuff or do you want me to go outside so i i i think the answer obviously is balance yeah i think the most interesting thing is uh, if you're going to post stuff online let it be something you've created not just a photograph you snapped off or or something like that i mean um some sketches some inside stuff because you're that means you're actually doing it you know you're creating the stuff that you're going to post right uh you're not using the kind of uh look and speed of social media stuff um because you, just because you click the, uh, the 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 button at the at a particular moment mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that but i think I think, I mean, you use the, the promotional possibilities of social media to promote something that you're proud of. There you some, go. Something that you did, that you created, some breakthrough you had, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So you drew something better this time than you did before. It's, I mean, it's fun for people who are interested in drawings, and, including people who can't really draw or, or feel less confident, um, to see somebody who's been working at it and working at it, and they begin to see progress. Mm -hmm. uh, because th that person who's been doing it is willing to share that experience and, and mm -hmm. that, uh, that sort of commitment. You know, this conversation I was having with the illustrator earlier today, mm -hmm. same conversation. Um, <clears throat> he also said something to the effect of, you know, I've been working on my craft for so long and I've been submitting and not hearing back. And he said, you know, I'm sitting here drawing and painting and thinking, what what good is this? Like, why am I wasting my time doing this? Why am I putting myself through this? Almost on the verge of, I mean, he, I, it felt to me like he was about to say, I, I, think, I, I think I'm just going to quit. Did you, have you ever felt in your career, like, I, I think I suspect the answer here is no, but have you ever felt like, you know, that you, you weren't fully interested in your own work? Yeah, there are times. There are, there are times when you think, okay, here's another book. I'm about to start another one. This could take me a long time, or this is going to be, um, you know, or generally speaking, those are the ones you really think about. And this is going to take us another two or three years of my life. Um, did I, will I have chosen something that anyone else is interested in? This, was, this happened with the very last book, um, Crossing on Time, the story about the ship that brought us to this country in 1957. Um, and I, I started working on this project because I was sort of interested in the ship. Um, and I thought, you know, it is an amazing thing. It's like a floating building, a, a hotel that has to actually exist on its own, mm -hmm. completely, uh, you know, independent of all other uh, sources of, uh, of power, of, of, you know, transport to and from, et cetera, et cetera. It's an isolated entity. Um, and I thought this, is anybody going to care about this other than me? Because this is going to take a while and it's going to be complicated and I'm going to have to, you know, sort of get to know lots of different people who are experts in various aspects of marine architecture and, um, you know, the ships of the 50s and 60s and so on before they sort of disappeared or all became something else. Um, uh, I, and I, I, I really, I wrestled with it for two years. And I went around in circles. And interestingly, if anybody ends up looking at my sketchbooks, um, like 50 years from now, um, they will think this guy's mad. He 
completely mad because on page 14 in his sketchbook, he has this paragraph written out and he has these little sketches and so on and so forth. And then at the end of the sketchbook, he has them again as if he's just discovered them for the first time. All he had to do is like turn the pages and go backwards. But that's what I mean by going around in circles where you're not sure why you're doing what you're doing. And I, that absolutely happens. I, you know, the great thing about working on a shorter book, 32 page book is that, you know, it's, it's not easy, but it's shorter. So in a way, it, you know, it, you, you, there's a, a bit of a trade-off there. You're gonna knock yourself out to make this as good as you possibly can, but it, it probably won't take as long. In yeah. some cases, that isn't the case, but generally speaking, I think that's true. Um, the longer books are the ones I really have second thoughts about. I mean, why did I do a book about the body, the human body? Yeah. Um, answer to that question is because I knew nothing about it. And I thought I would really like to know better about you know, more, more knowledgeable about how I work. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Where's my pancreas? What does it do? And you know, I knew I had one. I didn't know where it was, but I found out over, yeah. over six years. And that was a project that just about finished me off. And not only that, but everybody I was working with in the publishing world, my publishing world at that moment in time was beginning to think, this guy's never going to do this. This is never going to happen. He's just going to keep going around in circles again. Mm -hmm. um, and we finally called in a writer who knew this stuff. And he and I were able to sort of organize this thing in a very logical way. Not, not surprising, not earth shaking, but it, it allowed me to sort of fall back into the world of the visual. Right. and stop trying to be the writer of this thing uh, and stop trying to convince myself that I would be capable of knowing all this stuff and have enough confidence at the end of the process to be able to say, I made this all by myself. And that's really what was driving me. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the why that that's a really hard question. And, and I get that question a lot. You know, it's like, well, why, why should I be doing this? Yeah. I don't know what you tell. I don't know what you. I don't know what you're telling. No, I mean, why should you be doing it? Because you have no choice would be one possible answer. Because you have to, but you know, at some point, you may just have to do something radically different for a right. while. Yep. What you know, if, if or forever, not, or for or forever, or forever. Although I don't think even in the forever, you're you're going to give up creating, making images from scratch. Mm -hmm. deciding on, you know, creating a problem for yourself and solving it and, 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 uh, you know, that having that manifest itself in a, in a bunch of finished drawings, mm -hmm. um, which may or may not go anywhere, but you can't under underestimate the importance of that, um, process to your, to your existence. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's part of why we're here, but you may have to pay for it with other stuff. Uh, which is sad because it, it would be great if those things could pay for themselves. And that became the thing that uh, allowed you to, you know, pay the bills. Exactly. You know, the way we work reminded me of a book that introduced me to illustration and that's Grey's Anatomy. Um, it was illustrated by Henry Van Dyke Carter, by the way, I think he was 20. Um, did you, that was the first book that really introduced me to the concept of illustration. Did you have a similar, was there a similar book on your end? Um, nothing of that magnitude. Um, I, I, I didn't like to read. So, yeah, um, so 
I wasn't, we had, we had a few books in the house. Mostly they were about the king and the queen um, <laughs> and a couple of old buildings. Uh, that was pretty much our, our family library, all mm -hmm. of them, you know, like a, 10 books on the shelf. That was it. That was what we had. Um, the book that I uh, think of as having been, there were two. There's the big book of science, um, which was a golden book, but it was published in England. And I got it for, uh, as a, an, a prize for raising money for the Methodist Missionary Society in our Sunday school. Mm -hmm. So, and, and you know, if you did this for a year, you got to choose your, a book. And I, my mother and I went to the bookstore and we chose this one. Um, and it was one of those books, like it was sort of precursor of DK. I mean, double page spreads, each with a different topic, geology, uh, music, you know, some sort of physics thing, nature, and so on and so forth. I, I thought I had all the information at my fingertips that I would ever need in my life as a as a ten year old. Uh, looking through this book, it yeah. was incredibly empowering. But the other book was also was a book of uh, a version of Robinson Crusoe, and um, I still have it. And it was illustrated by you know a really good illustrator. Uh, you know, really nicely composed and, and painted and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But um, the thing that I remember mostly about that book was not the adventure or the shipwreck and stuff like that. It was after the shipwreck, what you could do with all the bits and pieces from a shipwreck and how you could make stuff. And what Robinson Crusoe did was on this island, he and Friday, you know, pulled ashore as much of this scrap as possible, broken masts and so on. And they made furniture, they made chairs, but the illustrations were so good that you could actually make the chair yourself from the, from the painting of the chair. Yeah. They were very simple, but talk about empowering. Talk about This is, again, this was even more than the, the book of science. Yeah. This, this is like fantastic because I'm seeing a, you know, a picture of a life that is entirely in the imagination on this island, and I'm learning how to make furniture from this. But that's not the person, that's not their point. They, they happened to be a good enough illustrator and well enough trained so that when they sat down to draw a chair, it would stand up. And, and you could yep. see how the legs fastened to the seats and the back and so on and so forth. That, I mean, that was a very important book to me. Yeah. Do you, do you know? Do you remember the illustrator's name? Uh, no, I wish yeah. I did. That's all right. Um, th that that actually reminds me of a of a illustrator that I was reading about recently by the name of Doris Byrne. Are you familiar with her at all? No, she was not that she I was, know. Her. Yes, Doris Byrne. She her first book was her. She, probably best known by her first book uh, and that it is called Andrew Henry's Meadow. It was published in the fifties, I want to say. And it's basically about this kid who, you know, feels like he's, he's misunderstood by his parents and he just takes off and builds, takes all the scrap and builds all these, he builds his, his, his own little fort and then all these other kind of, kind of narrow to well kids, but not really, uh, come and each of them have their own little fort built based on their personalities, based on their interests. That's what it sounded like to me. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to throw it out there just in case you were like, oh yeah, Doris, totally. Doris, I wish I could say I knew Doris. Yeah. I do not, I do not know Doris, but um, those kinds of, those kinds of books that, you know, that tell story, tell a story um, and yet leave you with, I mean, feed the imagination. 
yeah. for sure. sure. But also, in a, in a very practical way, as well as an emotional way, that combination is really powerful. Yeah. You know, there's a lot more. I'm sk- I have questions that I've skipped because there's just, I want to be respectful of your time. There's a ton more that I wanted to ask you about, but I think it's quitting time. Okay. Speaking directly to listeners of this episode, uh, people who are trying to figure out how to, pardon my expression here, how things work for them, mm-hmm. how things could work for them as illustrators. What would be one last piece of advice that you'd like to share? I don't, I think for me, working more out of your imagination is a way of separating yourself from the world you live in. Drawing from life um, as you begin to recognize and question things that you haven't really taken the time to notice does the opposite. It connects you with the world around you. Both of those are going to force you to or encourage you to kind of develop your, your drawing skills and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the one that where you actually have to stop and look at the world around you also encourages you to look at how things, how things are made, um, how they work, how people around them react to them. It's not in your imagination. It's actually you're studying um, this little bit of the world at that moment in time uh, with your sketchbook and with your, with your mind and your questioning and you're trying to replicate something and the, it's not to copy it exactly on the pages of a sketchbook. It is to question it mm-hmm. more deeply. In, in, and I think that's where the satisfaction comes from. And, you know, even if you're struggling figuring out where to use this, who could want this and so on and so forth, the first thing you need to take care of is that notion of satisfaction, personal satisfaction. Does this give you pleasure? If it doesn't give you enough pleasure, then probably you won't stick with it mm-hmm. and, and keep going. But you've got to really be um, capable of connecting with your, with your subject, make choosing what is going to be your subject and then connecting with it. And then, and using this, this illustration, this drawing talent that you may have, or this, this gift you wish to develop Mm -hmm. and using that to um, feel more part of, of, of a, of, of a larger world, even if you're not getting out of it, you know, what you had hoped in, in terms of publishing and so on and so forth. If that's going to happen, it will happen. And if you pay attention and if you make connections and all that sort of stuff we talked about earlier, that can happen. Mm-hmm. And some of it's going to be luck. I think a lot luck has had a lot to do with, you know, uh, the, the, the opportunities I've had in my life, but I was paying attention. Mm-hmm. And I was always looking for it, this thing called luck mm-hmm. and, you know, looking for that person uh, and recognizing that in a conversation with them, I was feeling something that, you know, I needed to hear right. or, uh, you know, uh, it's, it, I wish there was a clearer answer that I could offer. I'd have to sort of think about it. It would take me three weeks to write down one paragraph, but um, oh, I good. just, you have to do it. You have to, you have to believe in what you're doing because it, because it brings you personal satisfaction. If that is no longer part of the equation, you might want to consider looking for something else. To learn more about David, visit davidmcculley.com. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends, subscribe to the podcast, and provide a positive rating and review. 
Become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash illustration D-E-P-T. In return, you'll receive our soft enamel pin, a reusable discount code for 10% off, and access to patron-only episodes we're calling Extra Credit. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. Visit us at illustrationdept.com for class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our forum, the bookshop, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.